is Prayer Amid Pandemic, a podcast to encourage and sharpen the church through telling stories of Christians whose faith were shaped by sickness and by praying with fellow believers around the world. I'm Morgan Lee. No list of the great men of Protestantism is complete without John Calvin. Born in 1507 in Lyon, France, most of us today know Calvin for his beliefs on predestination. But Calvin also spent much of his life in excruciating pain. The reformer suffered from hemorrhoids, kidney stones, gout, and enlarged spleen, heartburn, indigestion, and chronic insomnia, according to an article from the medical journal Hectune International. Calvin also likely died from tuberculosis. I ran across this one uh, quote where he, he says, Our physical illnesses serve us for medicines to purge us from worldly affections and retrench what is superfluous in us. And since they are to us the messengers of death, we ought to learn to have one foot raised to take our departure when it shall please God. Daniel Harrell is Christianity Today's editor-in-chief and the author of Wisdom of the Saints and Near Saints, Christian inspiration from Ambrose to Zwingli. Calvin, we know him so well for this this idea that, that God dictates all that happens, but you know, really at the base of, of Calvin's conviction was this um, sure sense of, of God's goodness, his sovereignty, his power, so that even illness, when it, it came, was was used of God for uh, somehow our goodness and, and God's glory. It sounds very foreign to us in this day and age, but in his day, when sickness was so often incurable, uh, Calvin understood it as, as a reminder that this world is not it. John Calvin is born in France, but is best known for his ministry in Geneva. What exactly was he doing there? Basically, he was trying to set up a, a heaven on earth. He he believed that <laughs> if we as Christians would um, follow the, the dictates of Scripture um, with hearts devoted to God, we could experience um, eternity as if we were already there. And so we have a church and a, a city that, that comes under his um, jurisdiction for a season, and it was, it was pretty stern. He eventually, uh, eventually gets run out of town because it was so strict, but Calvin was, was convinced that, yeah, if we just took Scripture seriously enough, we could experience the joy of obedience that, that God intended. So I'm curious, how might you describe the public health situation in Europe in the 1500s? Uh, bleak. I mean, obviously, this is uh, days way before modern medicine or even germ theory. And so, as viruses and illness would, would make their way through communities, um, people had all sorts of, of ideas of how these things occurred and were transmitted. They, they were in a day when, at least in uh, the cases of plague and uh, similar kinds of illness, they had a belief in something called miasma, a noxious form of bad air that gave people sickness. And you have these really interesting pictures of people walking around in 16th century Europe with these masks on, with these large uh, like beaks on them to protect wearers from, from bad air. It's not unlike, I mean, in some sense, it's not unlike the social distancing that we're doing. These beaks were super long to to make sure that their wear, the wearers kept space between them and 
people who were emitting this bad air. Yeah, I think people have probably seen pictures of them before, and they honestly look a little strange. Yeah, they were very strange. But a lot of, I mean, you know, there weren't really public health initiatives that we enjoy today, and certainly not the the kinds of medicines we experienced. And so, life expectancy was short um, when a a plague or some other kind of of a disease would make its way through a community, a lot of people would die. So Calvin moves to Geneva in 1536. And over the course of his ministry there, there are five outbreaks of the plague. How does Calvin and his community respond? Well, not unlike the ways Christians still respond, you know, with with love, with initiative of caregiving, uh, stepping into spaces that others would not dare go. Um, Calvin and his uh, fellow pastors were critiqued and uh, censured by the by the governing authorities and by the citizenry for taking these these undue risks. But Calvin would uh, would argue that he was doing it, you know, doing it for the sake of love. And this is what Christ called us to do to heal the sick. What were the theological tenets that you would say drove Calvin and his followers to respond in this way? Well, here's where I think you find the power of of predestination. You know, this idea that that God would elect some to be chosen in his eyes has always been problematic, you know, and to modern ears because gosh, why would God ever play favorites? Um, I like the joke where the most fervent defenders of predestination will always consider themselves to be among the elect, but I think that's the point, that there is this sense that election provides a deep assurance and salvation of salvation, rather, um, amidst struggle and amidst trouble and doubt. But I think it's important to recognize, too, that, that Calvin you know, did not hold to this idea that that God just went sort of eeny, meeny, miny, mo. He would confine election to the, you know, the category of mystery. So his purpose wasn't really about who got saved as much as once you were saved, God was never going to let you go. That there was an assurance that you could have deep in your bones. Nothing can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Now, Calvin's critics would go on to say that, well, predestination, if you're that sure of your salvation, is nothing but permission to do as you please. You know, it's like an eternal get-out-of-jail-free card. You can take away any motivation for morality and ethics because, hey, you know, God can't let you go. But the opposite proved true. You know, you can do nothing to earn God's grace, but you still must do something to show you've received it. So, so in Calvinist theology, I mean, part of its beauty was that their high predestinarianism really induced them toward a very uh, this very intense this worldly activism you see this in the way that they cared for the sick they were they were sure that that God would care for them so death lost its sting and they would risk their own health uh, for the sake of love and would enter into these spaces where um, others would not would not dare go and it was a, it was a confidence and an assurance of of God's uh, love for them that that gave them gave them the power to do it. I'm curious, Daniel, if you would be able to read us some of Calvin's writing as he's making sense of this time of almost chronic plagues. Yeah, I stumbled across some some pieces here. I think I can read. You know, we we know that under we understand that that Calvin 
thought of predestination as a very difficult doctrine. He uses the language of horrible decree, but at the same time, um, or even more, it was a very sweet uh, fruit. But he admitted he didn't understand it fully, that only God fully knew, and that as, as finite creatures, it was something that as mystery we would receive, not be be able to, to grasp by virtue of reason, that reason, when it comes to faith, always has its limits, which is why we call it faith. So, he would go on, and, and here's one quote I found. He said, even though predestination is likened to a dangerous sea, still in traversing it, one finds safe and calm. I add also pleasant sailing. I like to um, tie that to that verse in the book of Hebrews when uh, we read that it's a, a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God, but it's better than being in anybody else's hands. And I think that's how Calvin would have have looked at it, better to be in God's hands in the life that we live than somewhere else. How has Calvin's response to the plague influenced those outside of the Geneva community and what, if any type of repercussions, would you say that that response has had even now? Yeah, I, again, from, from what I understand, um, you know, there, there was a, a sense of, of surprise that, that Calvin and his compatriots would, would extend themselves in the ways that they did, even given what people understood about plague at the time. They would have known that it, it transmitted person to person. So, you know, much like leprosy in Jesus' day, you want to stay away from the people that are sick and quarantine them off so as not to catch what they had, because plague was always deadly. I think in our own day, and as we're all quarantined in our homes, as we're, we're dealing with this coronavirus in the midst of social distancing, you know, the idea that, that there are some among us that would go among the sick, you know, for the sake of comforting them uh, in their time of illness, we no doubt expect this and uh, champion this amongst healthcare workers, but but we know with Calvin that you know sickness is not just a, a body event, but you know a, a, an event of heart, mind, and soul too. And so, you know, there are um, there are those perhaps who in these days are are called to come alongside the the sick in ways that that comfort them and in the hours of their death. We're still a little early and don't know what all that's that's uh, going to end up looking like. But I think for Christians who share Calvin's convictions of the love of God, that, that there is a there is a power that that gives us courage to intervene, perhaps in places where others would too, be too scared to go. Thank you, Daniel. Welcome. Here's the latest coronavirus news in the world and church for the week of April 12th. For the first time ever, Queen Elizabeth recorded an Easter message that was distributed across the British monarchy's social media. In it, she reminded viewers that Easter was not only not canceled, but that everyone needed its message more than ever. Christians in Colombia have come together to help their country fight coronavirus led by humanitarian organizations like World Vision, Bethany, Samaritan's Purse, and Compassion, 50 religious leaders pledged to help their government by offering spiritual support, social service volunteering, and offering their worship spaces as the government sees fit. 
Through a government decree, religious groups are able to offer social, spiritual, and emotional help to those who need it, reported Evangelical Focus. YouVersion's Bible app had its biggest day ever this past Easter. More people logged onto the app than any other day in the app's decade-plus history. Earlier this week, Christianity Today released its May-June cover story, Who is my COVID-19 neighbor? It asks. The only way to beat the coronavirus in the U.S. is to beat it everywhere. Can we really save the whole world? This piece explores the dilemma of offering adequate health care to those in the developing world. CT Print Managing Editor Andy Olson writes in this, In our globally connected age, humans, and Christians in particular, have flaunted our ability to stretch the definition of neighbor as far as an internet connection or a Boeing 787 will carry it. One takeaway of the COVID-19 crisis so far is that our boasting rings hollow. We clearly still react most strongly to events in our own backyard, and it's very possible the pandemic will push the world inward to a new self-centric era. But proximity is both geographic and relational. Perhaps our shared experiences with this virus, rich nations and poor nations, will bring us all a little closer once we emerge from the haze of self-isolation. Perhaps the next time we hear of some faceless people group out in the world suffering from an invisible, enigmatic predator, those people won't be so faceless after all, because we'll see ourselves in them. This piece is now available for subscribers online. The COVID-19 crisis is a global one, so we believe it's important to hear from our sisters and brothers in Christ from around the world. Our prayer today is from Dinesha Samaratna. Hi. I'm Dinesha Samararatna, a postdoctoral fellow in constitutional law. I'm a Sri Lankan living currently in Melbourne, Australia. Let us pray. God of the universe, we thank you for the hope we have in you for the salvation of our world. We look to the day, Lord, in which you will wipe every tear from our eyes and when there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. Lord, we take comfort in the knowledge that you lived among us and that you understand our pain, anxiety, confusion, fear and suffering at this time. We ask, Lord, that you would please give us your peace that passeth all understanding so that we may continue to worship you and be faithful to you during this difficult and confronting time. In your name we pray. Amen. Prayer Amid Pandemic is produced by myself, Morgan Lee, along with Matt Linder, Mike Cosper, and Eric Petrick. Please help us spread the word about Prayer Amid Pandemic by sharing about it on social media or recommending it to your friends. The best way for you to help, though, is by rating and reviewing it on Apple Podcasts. Our goal is to get to 25 ratings. If you have feedback, please send us an email at podcast at christianitytoday.com or on Twitter at CT Podcasts. We'll see you soon.